Halloween and welcome to History Pop, <laughs> where we examine the intersection of pop culture and history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. I'm your host, Courtney, and today, in honor of the upcoming holiday, we're going to be talking about something near and dear to my heart, <laughs> witches. Obviously, we can't talk about every time a witch appeared in popular works, so we're just going to narrow it down a bit by talking about some fairy tales, uh, and then looking at some of the 20th and 21st century, so Bewitched, Sabrina of the Teenage Variety, and maybe some Charmed and some Good Omens. Now remember, there are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast. Stay tuned for a spooky one-shot on History Pop. Welcome back. I am so excited to get to do a witches episode. I actually got to write a syllabus on early modern witchcraft in my comprehensive exams, and I'm so happy to actually have a place to share some of the research that I put into it. So, just as a bit of an outline for this cast, we're going to start by talking about how witchcraft was understood historically. Uh, this is, of course, going to be colored by my own historical research, which focuses on late medieval and early modern Europe. That's not to say that there aren't fascinating witchcraft traditions in other times and other parts of the world, but I just don't know about them yet. After that, we'll talk a bit about when witches pop up in popular culture and look at how those depictions have changed or not over time. So also, keep an ear out for your exit ticket question at the end. Uh, when I was teaching, it was something that I did at the end of every class period. I posed a question on the board, and the students had to answer it before they left. Usually, it was topically related to something in the reading or lecture, and it was always an opinion-based answer. But they had to tell me why they answered that way. So there is no right or wrong. I'm just curious as to what people think. So first, back in the medieval and early modern periods, we can't say that witches and witchcraft were understood to be supernatural. Even though witchcraft today would be seen as supernatural, the early modern people didn't see it that way. They saw everything that existed as completely natural because God made the world the way it was, and if there are witches, well, then of course they were totally part of God's plan for the world. Another thing, most of the time, if people think of witch trials and witch hunts, they're solidly placed in the medieval period. But that's not accurate at all. In my first episode of the Rose of Versailles cast, I talked a bit about periodization. That's when historians break up giant swaths of time into smaller, more manageable chunks that are easier to study. And so medieval and early modern are some of those periodizations. So when I say the medieval period, I'm generally referring to how it's used to describe events in Western Europe, which means it started after the fall of the Western Roman Empire around 476 and ended with the advent of the Age of Empire with European imperialism extending into the Americas around 1492. Now I fully understand that this is Eurocentric, and it totally is. Right now, I'm focusing on pop culture works that are situated within Western Europe or the Anglophonic world, but there will be other series where we spend time outside of the Anglophonic world. That's just kind of where we're at right now. 
So in Western Europe, the majority of the witch hunts started in early modern period and ended generally in the late 18th or early 19th centuries, so technically in the modern. Now, the last known woman to have been executed for being a witch in Europe was Barbara Zdunk, a Prussian woman in 1811. That late. However, that doesn't mean that this phenomenon was contained uh, and, you know, dealt with. Uh, women are still being executed on charges of witchcraft today in sub-Saharan African countries and in Southeast Asia. Witchcraft is legally punishable by death in Saudi Arabia. So as much as we can have fun poking at how witches are depicted, we do need to remember that real people have been brutally killed because of a societal belief in and fear of sorcery and witchcraft. We can look on the historical realities and think, oh, how silly that they believed in that and try to feel superior as this sort of modernist perspective. But that doesn't change the reality that these beliefs led to the deaths of men and women the world over. So during the late 16th and early and 17th centuries, there were a series of major witch hunts and trials all over Western Europe. There were a lot of political, religious, and social instabilities at the time because of the reformations, among other things, which shook Western Europe to its foundations. These religious changes led to splintering of churches, kingdoms, and even families. Fears of these changes could have led to a rise in witchcraft accusations. When something's going wrong, you want someone to blame. And who better than that creepy old widow lady who mutters to herself and her 16 cats? The first major trials in Europe were the Trier witch trials from 1581 to 1593, and they actually were probably the largest in European history. There were other trials in Germany as well, but they didn't last as long as the Trier, nor did they affect as many lives. Except maybe the Bamberg witch trials, which lasted from 1626 to 1631, which, while shorter, also took possibly over a thousand lives. And the Trier trials also possibly led to about a thousand executions. Now, there really weren't any mass witch hunts in England, but there certainly were in Scotland. The North Berwick Witch Trials of 1590-1591 led to the execution of perhaps over 3,000 accused witches. It all started with Gillis Duncan, and who you probably actually, if you are a fan of Outlander, you would know her as a character in that show. Uh, she was a serving woman who, at least according to her employer, David Seaton, started to sneak out of the house at night. She began behaving differently after Seton noticed these nocturnal excursions, and in her television, television series, uh, Witches, uh, historian uh, Susanna Lipscomb surmises that Gillis was sneaking out to meet a lover, and Seton was jealous, so he had her tortured. Now, another historian, Susan Dunhensley, mentions in her book, Anna of Denmark and Henrietta Maria, Virgins, Witches, and Catholic Queens, that Gillis, in addition to sneaking out at night, was also a talented healer. Uh, and then she quotes from, I believe it is a discovery of witches, uh, but she was known to, quote, to take in hand and help all such as were troubled or grieved with any kind of sickness or infirmity. Uh, Seton observed, as Don Hensley noted, that Gillis was able to perform many matters most miraculous and decided that, ooh, you can hear my familiar. Hi there. Are you going to say hi? No, you're just going to be annoying. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Gillis was able to perform many matters most miraculous and decided that she did not those things by natural and lawful means, but rather by some extraordinary and unlawful means. 
So instead of letting it out that she was sleeping with someone who wasn't her husband, because at this point in time that she would have been severely ostracized for her lack of virtue, she confessed to being a witch. Uh, and of course, she also did so under the pressure and immense pain of the pillywinks, or thumbscrews, and the winching of her head with a rope or cord. Seton and his cronies, in addition to the thumbscrews, also stripped her and shaved her body hair to find her witch's mark. A witch's mark is usually some sort of mole or birthmark that's a physical component of the compact a witch makes with the devil. Extra nipples also count. According to the News from Scotland pamphlet, published in 1591, Gillis didn't confess until her torturers claimed that they'd found her witch's mark. She was taken to prison, where she named names of other witches. Later, at the scaffold awaiting her execution, Gillis recanted what she'd said, but it was too late. In England, accused witches were hanged, but in Scotland, as in the rest of Europe, they were burned at the stake. Now, one of my favorite stories to share about witchcraft in Scotland is that of the entirely inept murderess Catherine Ross, Lady Folis. In 1590, Lady Folis was put on trial for witchcraft, incantation, sorcery, and poisoning. Catherine was the second wife of the Laird Folis, Robert Moore Monroe. Uh, the 15th Baron of Folis. The Laird had had many children with his first wife, Margaret Ogilvy, six of whom survived childhood. After she died, Laird Robert married Catherine, with whom he had seven children who survived childhood, so pretty good. Catherine became upset that her children wouldn't inherit anything from the Laird, and she was right. After he died, the Lairdship went to his eldest surviving son, also named Robert. The younger Robert was Margaret's son, and Catherine decided that he needed to be disappeared. Catherine also wanted to have her brother's wife, Marjorie Campbell, disappeared. For some reason. I think maybe to have one of her daughters marry her brother, but I'm not sure. Or another account puts it that Catherine tried to get rid of her brother George's wife so that he could remarry the younger Robert's wife when they'd taken care of him. So the whole family's just chock full of winners. Uh, Catherine hired a few witches to get rid of the younger Robert and Marjorie, who is his, uh, her brother's wife. The first thing that they tried was to make clay images of the pair. If a witch makes an image, it was understood to have a similar functionality to a voodoo doll. If you inflict damage to the idol, you inflict damage to the person it represents. So after the images were made, the witches shot elf arrows at them. Neither of the images broke, even after they were shot at eight times. Possibly because they missed all eight times. So clearly, this didn't kill off Robert or Marjorie. So the witches tried again. Second verse, same as the first, and shot elf arrows at the clay images. But once again, they shot 12 elf arrows. And the images didn't break because they missed again. So... Robert and Marjorie managed to survive and live another day. So after this spectacular witchy failure, the witches and Catherine decided to just go the old-fashioned route and poison Robert and Marjorie. The group got together in a barn and brewed up a good old batch of poison, but the bucket leaked and it ran out. So they made more, and this time double strength! And they sent it as a gift to Marjorie through her foster mother, who accidentally broke the door and tasted it herself, dying from its contents. Marjorie was actually poisoned by one of her maids, but she didn't die. She, through fierce stubbornness, just didn't friggin' die. Catherine was eventually found out when she uh, tried to get even stronger poisons imported from abroad and went to trial. 
There wasn't enough evidence to convict her, somehow, but she ended up being under house arrest for the rest of her life. Unfortunately, the witches who survived Catherine's murderous schemes were found and put to death by burning at the stake. Witch hunts continued in Scotland for the next 70 years or so until about 1662. Historians estimate that about 1,500 people were executed and a total of four to 6,000 were tried. Now, this is much higher than the rates in England, where possibly only 500 people were executed. But this is also much higher than at the Salem Witch Trials in 1692, where 19 were executed, but over 200 people were accused. Witches continued to hold fascination even after the witch hunts died out in the late 1700s and popped up in folk tales and were recorded for posterity in the Grimm's fairy tales. The brothers Grimm were a pair of academics who collected old printed stories and oral traditions from Germany and published the stories that they found. Their Kinder und Hausmärchen were published in two volumes, one in 1812 and the second in 1815. Witches figure prominently as villains in the Kinder und Hausmärchen stories. Some of the tales are well known today, and others, not so much. Hansel and Gretel is a popular tale, even though Disney hasn't done an animate, animated adaptation of it yet. Rapunzel, Dornruschen, and Schneewittchen are all feature witches as villains, and these are ones that Disney has turned into animated films. Others, Der Liebste Roland, uh, Fundevogel, uh, Die Zwölf Brüder, Brüderchen und Zwesterchen, all lesser known to American audiences, feature witches as villains. And this is only a small sample of the folk tales in which witches are shown to be powerful, dangerous women. A witch, in these instances, usually doesn't have children of her own and is a stepmother. This isn't always the case, like in Bruderchen and Svesterchen. Schwester, there we go. Bruderchen and Svesterchen. It's been a long time since I've done my German. Uh, when the witch, who is both a stepmother and a mother, tries to have her stepchildren killed, but only succeeds in getting herself and her daughter killed. Witches always have some sort of connection to the supernatural, and at this point in time after the Enlightenment, witchcraft is seen as something outside of regular powers available to people, and not something a rational person believes in. Witches are also murderous and conniving, and usually live off on their own, most often at a cottage, in the woods. The woods can take on either a sinister darkness, or be a refreshing escape, or both in these stories. So we see witches as villains a lot in stories, and that continues to be the dominant trend, at least in the U.S. until the 1960s and 70s, with, I would argue, the women's rights movement and lib movements reclaiming the witch symbol as a powerful woman who stands outside the power of the patriarchy. There's even a group within the radical women's lib movement called WITCH, or Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, and they would dress up as witches when they would protest. Before that, though, we do see both good and bad witches in the iconic 1939 film The Wizard of Oz. I absolutely love this moment. No, I, I know we're not in Kansas. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Because it's assumed by the Munchkins and by Glinda, the good witch, that Dorothy simply must be a witch herself as she wielded so much power. There's no comprehension that Dorothy is an ordinary girl without magical powers. What's also interesting is that we have an explicit distinction between bad witches, who are basically all we'd seen up until that point, and good witches. The bad witches in The Wizard of Oz are enslavers, and the good are emancipators. The bad are ugly and withered, while the good are younger looking and beautiful. 
We see the trend for beautiful, good witches continue with the Bewitched series, Samantha Stevens, who is a powerful witch in her own right. She's portrayed by the beautiful Elizabeth Montgomery, who can twitch her nose on cue, which, awesome. Samantha marries a mortal and wants to live the life of a normal 1960s housewife. She, even though she is eminently more powerful than her husband, strives to deliver on an American dream of having dinner ready when he walks in the door, the house looking perfect and clean, the children well behaved, etc, etc. Darren, her husband, makes her promise to live without using her magic, which is what leads to the hijinks of the show usually, especially when Andorra, Samantha's mother, pops in for a visit, which also happens frequently. As much as this could seem super aggressive for women's rights, Montgomery in real life was a champion of the women's rights movement, and this can honestly be seen in the character of Samantha. The most important thing for Samantha isn't her powerful magical abilities, it's the fact that she gets to make the choice whether or not to use them. She gets to choose what she wants to do with her life, to marry a mortal or not, to use her powers or not, to live the life of a housewife or not because she is choosing to live the life of the perfect housewife, rather than being forced into it, this is a bit of a subversion of the trope. She's a living example of what the Women's Live movement was trying to do, give women the choice to live the lives they wanted, rather than what was decided for them, being a housewife and taking care of the home and the children. Witches get to embody that power of choice. They have powers outside the rest of us mere mortals and can enact their will manifest. Many of the popular witches in media in the last 50 years or so have been those beautiful good witches. But there have been, especially as we creep closer to the 21st century, more and more complex, less black and white, more gray witches that appear in popular culture. I love how it's so rainy outside. I wonder if you can actually hear that. It's a beautiful, dark, dreary day. Best for talking about witches. Now, I can't not talk about witches and not talk about the best witch, Willow Rosenberg of Buffy the Vampire Slayer fame. Willow starts off the series as a super shy, nerdy, computer, techie girl who is also extremely kind and is best friends with Xander Harris, who they've known each other since childhood. She grows the most over the series, coming out of her shyness and growing into her powers as an uber-powerful witch. She spends a lot of time studying, which is one of the things she's also super good at, and learning the mystic arts. Over the course of seven seasons, guest appearances on the spin-off Angel and the comics which just finished off with season 12. She is a complex, complicated, eminently likable character who spends more time as an on-screen baddie than anyone else in the Scooby gang aside from Spike. Uh, even then though, by the end of the series, she is the most powerful hands down of all the Scoobies. She's loved, she's lost, and she's learned to let herself love again. She's learned about who she is as a person, learned to become more confident in herself and her capabilities. I love Willow. And if you haven't watched Buffy, what rock are you hiding under? Get on Facebook, of all places, and watch it! One of the things I realized as I was putting together this list is that most of the witches I'm focusing on are those whose universes are also feature regular, normal muggles on a fairly frequent basis, which is probably one of the reasons why I'm not actually going to talk about uh, the only reason that Harry Potter didn't die when he was 11, Hermione Granger. 
While the wizarding world does exist alongside the muggle world or within it, muggles don't feature as main characters, side characters in the series. Part of one of the things I find super interesting about the witches that we're talking about so far and uh, to come is how they reconcile their powers and the world that they live in. Hermione, we don't see this. Hermione does have to make some sense of, if not the most difficult decisions in the whole of the series because of her muggle-born nature, but we never spend time with her family to get to know her dentist parents or really any other muggles aside from Harry's family. So while Hermione's decision is painful, and it's hard for the audience because of our connection to Hermione, it isn't as hard as it could have been had we actually gotten to know her parents beforehand. But we can't talk about pop culture witches and not mention the Hallowell sisters, Prue, Piper, and Phoebe. The power of three are the leads in the uh, show, 1998, Charmed, which has been rebooted on CW, 2018, with new leads, Macy, Vaughn, and Mel and Maggie Vera. They have similar powers to the original Charmed ones, the oldest, Prue and Macy, having powers of telekinesis, the middle sisters, uh, Mel and Piper, having the ability to freeze time, and the youngest, Phoebe and Maggie, having the ability of empathy. Now, this was something that Phoebe learned later on in the series. Originally, she had premonitions. The Charmed Ones are some of the most powerful witches on Earth, and they can basically combine their powers and work to do some seriously strong magic. I'm not gonna lie, I actually haven't seen much of the rebooted Charmed, but my mom and sister absolutely loved watching the original and it would be on while I was doing homework or whatever. Now, I was more of an X-Files kind of girl, but I did get a lot of this through osmosis. Now, these witches live in our regular world in San Francisco, and they work hard to protect innocent people from the forces of darkness. They do so with the aid of their own sort of watcher meets guardian angels, white lighters. And it's a soapy series that focuses on the power of sisterly love, long before Frozen was even a thing. Do I get to talk about Frozen? Maybe? 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 Probably not. <clears throat> anyway, uh, as the series progresses and Prue ends up dead and replaced by a long-lost half-sister who is also half-witch and half-whitelighter, Paige, the focus, while of course still on battling the forces of evil, takes a turn to spotlight the relationships of the sisters and their romantic entanglements. Critics talked about how it got much more campy as the series went on, and yes, yes it did. Again, though, the most important part of witchiness is that ability to choose your destiny. And yes, that was a very brave moment, you know, I'm going to shoot for my own hands and, you know, I'm going to choose my own destiny. Uh, the Charmed Ones have this weird mix of destiny and choice. On the one hand, they fall in love with who they fall in love with, and then choose to make those complex relationships work, a la Leo and Piper. But they end up continuing the power of three by each settling down and having three kids, because the story demands it. Especially as the show goes on, it feels stilted in its writing and ideas. So we're going to have to see what happens with the second Charm series. Another major 90s pop culture witch was Sabrina Spellman, of the Sabrina the Teen Witch fame, played by the never-aging Melissa Joan Hart. The character originates from the comics of the same name, originally published back in 1962. The show aired for seven seasons and followed the misadventures of Sabrina, who gained her witchy powers on her 16th birthday. She lives with her aunts, who are also witches, Zelda and Hilda, who teach her how to use her magic. She also has a talking, sassy-as-hell black cat named Salem. 
Now this show is a lot lighter and much more bubbly than its spiritual successor, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which is now available on Netflix. The Chilling Adventures is much darker and also originated in comics of the same name, this time from 2014, and stars Kiernan Shipka as Sabrina Spellman, who has known for her whole life that she's a witch, how to use her powers, and then on her 16th birthday she must sign the Dark Lord's book to become a full member of the Church of Night. What's interesting is that these comics are set in the 60s, but the show, I honestly don't know. Uh, it's got some elements that make sense in the 60s and some that make sense now. You've got old tiny cars and laptops. Um, you've got interesting fashion choices that wouldn't look out of place in the 60s and then some other stuff going on now. So it is actually a really interesting uh, visual representation and trope that we're dealing with to kind of off-put the viewer, which makes sense with the... Uh, different powers that we're dealing with here and helping us to suspend our disbelief a bit. Now, it's set in Greendale, which is somewhere close to Riverdale. Yes, that Riverdale. And is more of a modern and contemporary take on witchcraft that's infused with a feminist bent. Choice is, again, a key theme in the series, as Sabrina is forced to choose between the moral world of her friends and the witch world of her family. Uh, she is a progressive witch who doesn't want a familiar to serve her, but to help each other out as equals. She actually puts out a call for a familiar instead of picking one out of a book. And she ends up with a volunteer goblin who takes the form of a black cat named Salem. Uh, Sabrina also sets up a women supporting women club at her school to help out her LGBTQIA friend, Susie, and of course all the other women at school. Uh, Roz, another one of her friends, decides to call the group WICCA, Women's Intersectional Cultural and Creative Association, which is, I can't help but believe, a callback to the witch women's lib group I mentioned earlier. And all of this is just in the first episode. Now, I've actually only, only finished the first season, so I'll need to jump in and see what happens in season two. Also, Michelle Gomez can do no wrong. I absolutely <laughs> The final pop culture work that we'll be looking at today is Good Omens, which was originally a novel written by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman and published in 1990. Good Omens follows the stories of two friends, an angel, Aziraphale, and a demon, Crowley, who try to stop the end times. There are a lot of different threads to follow in this book and TV adaptation, so I'll focus on the one that makes sense for our theme today. But I have to say I absolutely love Aziraphale and Crowley so much. <laughs> But the main occulty witch character is Anathema Device, who is trying to follow the nice and accurate prophecies of her ancestor, Agnes Nutter, a witch from the 17th century whose book of prophecies were the only one that has ever been 100% accurate. Madame Tracy is another woman who has access to supernatural powers and is swept up in the struggle against the end times. Both are shown to be good characters in that they don't want the world to end, and they're part of the effort to stop Armageddon in their own ways. Madame Tracy is neighbors with Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell, who is the last of the Witchfinder army, the same people who put Agnes Nutter to the stake several centuries ago. She's also a medium who performs seances and ends up hosting the angel Aziraphale in her body after his is discorporated. In the television series, in uh, 1656, Agnes Nutter is shown to be a confident and slightly murderous witch who ends up killing her whole town as they round her up and crowd around her stake as it burns. Now, once again, witches in England were hanged, not burned. But that's okay. It's, it's, it's fun for the, for the show to make it do this way. So, uh, 
Turns out, as she's calling her people to come and you know, come closer and see the witch barn, turns out she'd loaded her skirts with nails and gunpowder. So, yeah, slightly murderous. But they'd been hunting witches and putting them to death, so I suppose it was eye for an eye. Now, what's interesting is that this show uh, shows the legit historical methods of finding witches. Look, looking for witch marks, noting her healing abilities, her odd behaviors like taking a morning constitutional jog, the fact that she lives at the end of a lane in a cottage by her lonesome, and they end up executing her by burning her at the stake. Which, once again, inaccurate. But this was in the north of England as well. Um, so it's possible that they were getting confused with what was going on in Scotland. Burning at the stake, though, was reserved for heretics, and the flame was thought to purify the heresy out of them. And so witches were hanged in England instead. Now, Agnes Nutter actually may be named after a woman who was killed for alleged witchcraft. Alice Nutter, one of the Pendle witches. Anathema Device could also have been named for one of the Pendle witches, Alison Device. In 1612, a a group of 12 accused witches were rounded up in Lancashire in the north of England. These people were charged with maleficium, or harm that is caused by witchcraft, instead of regular old harm. The Pendle trials are some of the best documented in English history, and so are some of the most well-known today. The Pendle witches were tried with the Salisbury witches, who were charged with cannibalism, killing a horse with witchcraft, using witchcraft to cause illness, and child murder. I need to look more into these Salisbury witches. But anyway, the Pendle witches were, for the most part, condemned on the testimony of a nine-year-old girl, Janet Device. She ended up testifying that her mother, sister, and brother were all witches who had dogs that were familiar, spirits that could leave the body and kill people, and powers to simply wish people dead. Allison had apparently cursed a man for not giving her pins, and he came down with a stroke not long after. He blamed Allison, which started the witch hunt off, and eventually Allison came to believe in her own misbegotten powers. All of the accused were found guilty and hanged. So I guess I brought it all back to early modern witches, didn't I? Uh, witches have been important characters in fiction throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, and even earlier. They've been historically inspired and represent a particular kind of woman, as my advisor puts it. Uh, women who struggled against the patriarchal power structure throughout history have been labeled as different, as other, in various ways. As saints, witches, or mad women, depending on when they lived and how they expressed that difference. Witches have continued to hold fascination with creators for centuries, alternately making them evil and then good, and now flawed and complicated. How society represents its witches, I think, puts an interesting mirror up to how society views its women. Are they independent? Just how powerful are they? Do they seek their own gain or the good of all? Do they cause chaos and destruction or bring order? Are they good witches or bad witches? I'll leave you with your own thoughts to answer those questions, but I do hope that you'll have a frightfully good Halloween, and I'll catch you later. Your exit ticket question this week is, are you a good witch or a bad witch? Feel free to reach out on Twitter with the hashtag HP exit ticket to let me know. Join us next week for our first episode of our series on the Masterpiece PBS series Victoria. Our next one shot will appear after the Victoria series and be on. Divorced. Beheaded. Died. 
divorced. Beheaded. Survived. And tonight, we are... Six the musical. I'm really excited because I actually have tickets for opening night. Uh, but anyway, this is Courtney for History Pop signing off. It's been a pleasure. Take care. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herber. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a turtle and